You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to turn to Psalm 61. Psalm 61. As you're turning there, just a few uh, brief comments by way of introduction. Psalm 61 is a is a well-known companion. I mean, I think maybe some of you are familiar with Psalm 61, and it's a great psalm in times of danger, times of distress, times of uncertainty, times of anxiety, and God has used it over the ages uh, to strengthen myriads of generations. So, now the psalm's best known for the famous line, which we read uh, earlier. Namely, the line, uh, lead me to the rock uh, that is higher than I. So Psalm 61, let us read the psalm in its entirety. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name. As I perform my vows day after day, let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning, Father, that, Lord, you would be pleased to open up this great passage to our hearts, Father, that you would be pleased to open our hearts to this great passage. We recognize that these words are not just ordinary words, but these words are your words. They're words that the Holy Spirit gave to David, words for him to pen and Lord, you have preserved these words over all these centuries, over 3,000 years. And how many generations have been comforted by these words in that span of time? And, oh, Father, we indeed come to you this morning, Father, seeking comfort from those words as those who have gone before us have done uh, many times. And we ask, oh, Father, that, Lord, you would speak to us this morning from Psalm 61. And some who are logged in, um, uh, are are indeed anxious, and some who will listen to this uh, message later uh, are indeed anxious and indeed fearful. Well, Father, we lift them up to you, and we pray, Father, that you administer your grace, your security, uh, your safety, your comfort, and your love to them, O Father. And use this mightily, O Father, to these ends, and ultimately, Father, most importantly, be glorified, O Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The context of the psalm is, and actually before I even get to the context, why don't, I was going to do this inductively, but maybe it'll be easier for many of you as I, as I kind of peruse the little boxes here and I see who's joined with us. It might be easier for some of us. That, let, let me just say there's three easy points this morning that I want to tackle. And the first is it's, it's going to center on verse 2. Namely, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And the, the first point that I want to make is, what is the rock? 
And the second point that I want to make is where is the rock? And the third point that I want to make is how do we get to the rock? So what is the rock? Where is the rock? How do we get to the rock? I think it'll be more helpful for you to have that kind of in mind as we go through. The context this morning is uh, if you look at the title of the psalm, which is those words that are uh, at the very top right before verse 1, uh, notice it says to the choir master with stringed instruments or something similar to that. Uh, then it says of David. Uh, David is ascribed as the author of this psalm. Uh, that would be King David, uh, who is the most celebrated of the earthly kings uh, in Israel, uh, aside from Christ, of course. And um, David being the uh, penman and author, uh, in verse 1, he cries out to God. Now, the word cry here can it, it can mean a cry of great joy it can mean a cry of of bitter and shrill distress and it's the context that determines the difference determines the meaning uh, obviously this is the latter this is a cry of of deep uh, dark distress that david is crying out in and he he says hear my cry oh god hear my uh hear uh hear my cry and you know, we try to speculate what could what could possibly be the circumstances that David has found himself in that he would call on God like this. And the psalm doesn't give that up. It doesn't say. But I, uh, many people have uh, come to the opinion that it, uh, David cries out as he is fleeing from uh, from his uh, from Absalom. And some of us will be familiar with that story. Some of us maybe not so familiar. Uh, the story. Uh, Absalom was one of David's sons, and Absalom loved the throne more than he loved his father. And he coveted the throne, and he wanted the throne. And in a monarchy, and especially an ancient monarchy like that, you can't just take the throne off somebody. It's going to inevitably lead to the death of the of the presiding king. And uh, Absalom, he stands in the city gates. And we're told that he singly uh, uh, steals the hearts of the people uh, so much that within a few years, he, he had such a following that he was able to lead an uprising, a coup against his father, David, that was so significant that it forced David to flee from the palace. And David flees with just a, a few of his most loyal people. And what is sad is that his son is not one of those most loyal people, but um, uh, he flees, and he flees out. Uh, and, I, and I think that uh, there's there's good reason for believing that that is the context behind the psalm. If you look at verse two, the first line, David out of he's crying out of distress, but he's crying out of distress from the end of the earth. Now, what's meant by that? Uh, he's far away from Jerusalem. He's far away from Jerusalem, and and in the, the Old Testament economy. In ancient Israel, the closer you got to Jerusalem, the closer you got to the presence of the Lord in many respects. And the closer you got to the temple, the closer you got to the Lord. And the closer you got to the courts, uh, the closer you got to the Lord. And, the, and of course, to go inside the temple, to go inside even into the, into the holy place would be to get even closer to the Lord. But to be closest to the Lord would be the most holy place, which would be uh, would not be permitted for anyone but the high priest in that once a year. And there, uh, God, the, the, the most holy place was where the Ark of the Covenant is. And I think there's probably a veiled reference to that in the psalm that we'll get to if we have time. 
But that is where God, that, that is, that represented the presence of God in this, in this economy. And here David is probably fleeing from Absalom, has been forced far away from the temple, and he's feeling far away from God, uh, no question. In fact, one, uh, one old preacher said that uh, just to pray, just, to, just the prayer to hear my cry, uh, just that in and itself actually supposes that the presence of God is departing. Um, so uh, he, he is saying, hear my cry, O God, as he is far away from the temple and as his um, heart is faint. Um, some of the versions, if anyone has a King James version out, I know Marilyn's fond of the King James translation, but uh, it, it, it reads, while my heart is overwhelmed. So it's an overwhelmment. It's a, the heart is almost ready to, uh, to faint over the, this particular situation, which is a, uh, in a life-threatening situation if we're, if we're accurate in ascribing the context to David's uh, flight from Absalom. That was a life-threatening situation for David, for sure. Now, uh, you'll notice that David prays. Uh, David prays. And it's important that we understand that. Actually, one of my, one of my fears for the, the crisis that we're in right now, as, you, as I indicated in my pastoral prayer, is really downstream. Uh, a lot of small business owners, and not just that, but, but people who, you know, people are employed in all stripes. Um, we mistaken our identity today, and we mistakenly uh, tie our identity to what we do. And we mistakenly tie our worth to how successful we are at what we do. That's a dangerous, that is just a dangerous recipe. And, uh, you know, here David in his distress, uh, he prays. Now, if David had been prayerless at this point in time, that that would have been a very dangerous situation uh, for David. Because prayerless leads to despair. And disparity leads to depression. And depression can lead, it can actually lead to an emotional uh, pain that if it becomes to such a degree, uh, now a person is very susceptible to taking his own life. So, you know, the COVID-19 virus doesn't take him, but, but you know, suicide could. This, happened, this has happened in, in every single one of these kinds of crises that countries have faced. So it's, it's important to take a leaf out of David's book. David is in despair. David prays. He prays to God. Now, what does what does David pray? Uh, what does he pray? Well, the petition is, lead me to the rock. Uh, lead me to the rock. And let me answer the first question or outline. What is the rock? If you turn uh, to Psalm 18 and verse 1 and 2, just keep your place in Psalm 61 and just turn back to Psalm 18 verses 1 and 2 for another psalm that is composed by David. And there, David is very clear. And we let the clear passages enlighten us on the passages that aren't as clear. If you look at Psalm 18, verses 1 and 2, uh, there, David says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my what? Uh, He is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. So here, who, who, you know, what is the rock? The rock is none other than, than God Himself. And let, let me let, let's now focus on the second question in our outline. Uh, 
where is the rock? Uh, where is the rock? Well, th this may sound like an odd question, but I think I think that teasing this out a little bit is going to be really helpful. Let me let me let me just whet your appetite a little bit with a, a really common scenario. I mean, how many times has uh, have people come to you and they've come to you and and they've talked to you about a serious situation that's going on in their lives. And, and obviously, as they talk, it becomes very clear there's really nothing you can do. And there's really nothing that they can do. And you counsel them, listen, you know, this is something that you're just going to need to take to the Lord in prayer. We've all probably, all of us have probably been there with people, right? For many people, that is, um, how, how, what does that sound like on their end? Uh, for many people, they just don't know what to do with that. You know, and obviously, if your eyes haven't been opened yet to the presence of Christ, and and if, if Jesus is not a, um, a significant uh, figure in your life, a significant personal presence in your life, well, what do you do with that? You know, what do I do with that? And, by, and, and, and even at that, uh, as we leave them, who do we leave them praying to? Uh, who are they praying? Who are they? Who are they to? Who are they to pray to? Who are they to cast their cares before? So, with with that in mind, I want to share an illustration. I, I introduced a book. I think it was two weeks ago. Um, I, I don't know if any of you remember this book or not. I don't know if you can see it in the camera. It looks like you can. Um, and this is a three volume work by Charles Spurgeon. It's uh, I, I think I read somewhere that this is. Um, it's about a two million word work. There's about two million words in this three volumes, and it's it's really his um, it's his uh, magnum opus. It's his it's his most uh, significant work. Uh, um, it's a commentary on all 150 Psalms, and it, uh, Spurgeon himself offers some commentary. But what is really cool about this work is he goes out and he's he's read so widely. He had a 12,000 volume library, and he read so widely, and he has. Uh, a section on the Psalms. Uh, after his exposition of each Psalm, there's a there's a section called Quaint Sayings, and some of the nuggets of divinity that are found in those in those quaint sayings is absolutely incredible. But uh, Spurgeon tells a story, and this is a story that if we had lived in in London, then at this time that's where Spurgeon is is serving. He's serving a congregation in London, and he tells of a story that a lot of people would have been aware of. And the story takes place in the northern shores of the UK, and it's a place where the the ocean shore is quite treacherous, where there was um, a lot of uh, reefs. Uh, ships would hit the reefs and they would splinter apart, leaving sailors adrift at sea in these various storms. And as they came close to the shore, there were a number of rocks uh, which were dangerous within themselves, but there was one really large rock that was large enough that if a sailor could could climb the rock, he could reach safety. But you know what the waves after time beating against those rocks, you know what they do. Uh, they, they beat those rocks and they wear them smooth. So there's nothing to get a hold of. There's no way to lift. There's no way for the sailor to lift himself up out of danger. So what was really sad is a lot of sailors perished when they could clearly see right in, right in front of their view was, was a rock that would have been safety if they could have reached it. And there was a, uh, one of the village pastors, the village clergy uh, near there, he took it upon himself to go out and actually cut stairs into that rock. 
he, he, he underwent the enormous labor of cutting steps into the rock. And, and then he excavated a large chamber out of the top of the rock so that the sailor could go up the steps and go into the chamber and reach safety where undoubtedly he, he could rest and, and have some uh, refuge from the storm, ride out the storm and be delivered to safety. Now, uh, with that in mind, now Spurgeon, uh, his illustration of this, after telling the story, uh, he writes that the illustration is self-interpreting. He goes on to say that our experience leads us to understand this verse right well. For the time was with us when we were in such amazement of soul by reason of sin, that all know, although we knew the Lord Jesus to be a sure salvation for sinners, yet we could not come to him by reason of our many doubts and forebodings. Now, what is he saying there? Just like the sailors that are in the waters and they can't climb the rock, they could see the safety of the rock, but they were unable to climb it. And Spurgeon is applying this, this in a way where this describes a lot of people because of doubts, uh, because of, of, uh, of unbelief, because of sins, things that are in their past. Uh, they can see Jesus, but they have no way of getting to him. They have no way of, of, of getting up to him. And one of the things that, that I want to develop in this, um, and just let me say, you know, uh, as we're answering the question, where is the rock? You know, one of the things I want to develop about this, um, this illustration of Spurgeon's that I think is quite interesting, it's not something that he develops, but let's think about that chamber that's in the top of the rock. You know, this, this pastor cut those steps up the rock and he excavated this chamber. Where does the sailor who's adrift at sea, where does he need to get? He needs to get into that chamber. He needs to get into that hole, if you will. How is he to get to that hole? Well, uh, Spurgeon goes on to say that the steps that the that the pastor carved in the rock, actually the, the waves eventually eroded those steps to where uh, later the, the sailors not only could see the, the hole in the top of the rock, they could see some steps leading down from that hole, but then they'd go down so far and, and then they'd be eroded away. So they were, they were away from his grasp. Uh, physically, he couldn't reach them. Uh, his, by way of his own ability, there was no way for him uh, to get to those. He could see the safety, but he could not, could not reach it. And that, that leads us to the third point that I want to work. Let me, the first point is, what is the rock? The rock is God. Where is the rock? We can be more specific. We could be more specific and we say, well, where is the rock? Well, the rock is Christ. Sometimes we sing Christ is the rock of salvation. Uh, Christ is, is the rock. And and we could even say this, that, that Christ is a lot like the chamber that's in the top of that rock. You know, if you're in Christ Jesus, meaning that if you've come to Christ Jesus by faith, and faith, by the way, is the staircase uh, that leads us to the rock. But if you've come to faith in Christ, the Bible tells us that we're hidden with Christ. We're hidden with him. It's like we're, and the Bible speaks about us being in Christ. And I think this chamber in the rock gives us something concrete, I think. It's an illustration. Let's not press it too far because we don't want to make any idols of God here. 
But the scriptures speak of God as a rock. And as we think about God as a rock, and we think about this chamber that's in the rock, a place of protection, a place of safety, a place of covering. Uh, with that in mind, let's take a look at Ephesians. Keep your place in, in uh, Psalm 61 and turn with me to Ephesians. And I want to point something out to you. In Ephesians, as we begin with verse 3, in that passage that we looked at earlier, Ephesians chapter 1, look, beginning with verse 3. Now, the, the text is very dense. It would take a while to, to, to sort it out. It would take a while to, uh, you know, to, to sort all this out. And I've been thinking, really, maybe on Friday nights for our devotion, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do some work on, on this great chapter because it is a great, great chapter. But if you turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, notice, and again, Paul, is he's speaking of the blessings of God. And it's almost like, you know, if you think about him as, as taking a really deep breath and uttering these things out with joy and passion uh, until he's completely out of breath, I think you're on to the stent of the ethos of these verses. But he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. You see that phrase, in Christ. Now hold on to that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. There's another reference. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. There it is again. Uh, that is in Christ. Verse 7, in him, we have it again. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. You see that again, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite us, uh, to unite uh, unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Verse thirteen: In Him you also, when you heard the word of the truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now for the, for the moment, don't worry about all the details. Just think about all of these references that are being made to in him that is in Christ. And think about old Spurgeon's illustration, though he doesn't, Develop it this way, but think about that chamber that's in that rock. God is the rock, but more specifically, Christ is our rock. He is the rock whom God has sent. He is God. And Christ, Christ is that chamber upon which we must get into, or we will have no safety from the storm. So as people come to us, and they come to us with 
desperation or as even as we uh, find ourselves in desperation. Uh, what is our counsel? Not simply to pray to the Lord, but our counsel is to flee to Christ. We flee to Christ. And, and that leads us to the last thing. How do we get to the rock? How do we get to the rock? I've already intimated that it is by faith. But what does that mean? What does it mean? Faith is used all the time in our culture, but it is very rarely used. It is very rarely used in a biblical way. Very rarely. Most of the time when you hear faith, it's not being used in biblical categories. So uh, though we hear faith all the time, uh, we're, you know, our culture is not, it really is not very well indoctrinated in what faith is. Um, I'll give you uh, three things that are typically given when discussions about faith are given. This is not the last word on faith. There's more to it than this. But this is the least that we need to know. Uh, We need to know at least this when we're talking about faith. And there are three important components to faith, important components. And a lot of times you'll hear the first one uh, called knowledge, that faith contains knowledge. I want to add a qualifier to that. I want to say that it, it's it's personal knowledge. And I'll explain why I want to put personal in front of that. Uh, we have to have knowledge. I mean, you know, I, I give you an example from the devotions in my, in my own life. You know, for like this week in the mornings when I get up, I, I want to spend time with God. It's the first thing I do every morning. And I've been I've been grazing upon the Gospel of John and studying the gospel of John. And I haven't really been in any hurry to get through it. I've just been reading it slowly. Sometimes I'll read the same chapter over and over again. Sometimes I read the same pericope over and over again, you know, the same, the same passage over and over again. And lately I've been in John six and what am I trying to do? You know, I'm watching Jesus. I'm just watching him. I'm watching him. I'm listening to what, to what he says, because I want to hear his voice. I want to hear his voice. I, I, I want to see him. I want to hear him. I want to know what, he, what he's doing. I, I'm, I'm drinking of the compassion that he shows. For example, in, in, in John chapter 6, there's a large crowd nearby, and he has compassion on them. And what does he do? Well, you know, to test his disciples, he say, listen, we need to feed them. And his disciples said, well, you know, 200 denarii, that is 200 days worth of the average laborer's wages who couldn't feed this crowd. And and then a young boy uh, turns up who has five barley loaves of bread and, and two small fish. And, and, and Jesus takes the barley loaves of bread and the two fish and he multiplies it and, and he feeds everyone. Now, I say that, you know, we have to have knowledge of Jesus. We cannot have faith without knowledge. But our knowledge can't be like the knowledge that we would have for a history exam that we're prepping for. You know, uh, in, in 1492, uh, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, uh, you know, that all that stuff. Or, or you know, the, the, um, you, you're preparing for an American history test and, you know, in 1976, Congress uh, voted to enact the blah, 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 all that stuff that, okay, I've got to get a few details of this so that I can pass the test. And, and as soon as the test's over with, the stuff is out of your mind. I mean, 
that's knowledge. I mean, that's a knowledge that's put into short-term memory for the purpose of trying to get through a test, but it's not knowledge that's that we're going to have necessarily any passion about. Um, I want to call this personal knowledge because uh, there, there's a personal component to that knowledge. And that, that's the first component, if you will, of, of saving faith, which is the only kind of faith we should be interested in is the faith that say the saving faith. And um, the second component would be assent. Assent. Now, what's that mean? Well, that means that we need to agree that, that what we're reading is, is true. So, for example, the person who just simply has knowledge, you know, okay, they, they, they could go to John chapter 6 and they could say, okay, well, Jesus is there and there was 5,000 men there. So scholars estimate there may have been, you know, 20,000 people there if we count women and children. And, um, and then, you know, on top of that, um, there was five barley loaves and there was two fish. And, okay, so these are, these are details. But then, then a person would come to it and it's, they see that Jesus multiplied the, the, the barley loaves and the fish and, and, and they could say, you know something, I, that sounds absurd. I mean, how can you feed, how in the world can you feed 20,000 people with just five barley loaves? So this person would have some knowledge. I would argue it's not personal knowledge, but they would have some knowledge. And, but they don't have any assent. They just, they're skeptical. They don't think it's true. Like that, that would be one scenario. Let me give you another scenario that's really popular. And this scenario is very popular even in the church or even among those who confess and profess to believe. And that scenario is this. There's knowledge, maybe not a personal component to the knowledge, but there is knowledge. Okay, I believe Jesus was the son of God. He, he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. On the third day, he rose again. There he is at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, reigning supremely and invested uh, authority. And he promises to return and, and consummate the new heavens and the new earth. A person can have all that knowledge, not necessarily a, a personal knowledge. And they can have all that knowledge and even assent and say, yeah, I believe that's true. Yet not be in possession of saving faith. Now, how do I know this? I'll tell you how I know this. I once was one of those people. There, there's never been a time in my life where I didn't think the Bible was true. There's never been a time in my life where I doubted anything was in the Bible. I didn't know a whole lot about what was in the Bible, but I believed the Bible was, I believe it was true. And if someone was said, you know, you can't believe that Bible, I would have thought they were ridiculous. Sure, you can believe that Bible. So, and I had some knowledge of the Bible. I could have told you that Jesus was the son of God. I could have told you that he died for the sins of his people. I could have told you that he was crucified that he was buried on the third day, rose from the dead. I'd recited the Apostles' Creed, and I knew all the details of the Apostles' Creed, that he's reigning at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and supreme authority. I, I, I could have told you all those facts, and I, I mentally assented that those facts were true. But I was lacking the third and, most, and really the crucial component, and that is trust. And I want to qualify this word, too. If you're writing down knowledge, write down personal knowledge. If you're writing down the second one, it's assent. If you want to write down the third one, it's trust. But I would call it living trust. Living trust. I, I wasn't in possession of living trust. I, I knew that Jesus lived and died. I knew he, he bled and died for sins. And I knew the basics of the gospel message. But that hadn't affected my life. 
it hadn't turned my life upside down, or we might even argue it hadn't turned my life right side up. It, it hadn't had that effect. I, I hadn't really seen the beauty of Jesus. I haven't seen the splendor of Jesus. I hadn't seen the majesty of Jesus. And you see, saving faith includes, and most importantly includes that, and that's why I like the parable of the of the pearl that I that I brought out last week. I, I love it in in Matthew thirteen. You don't need to turn there, but in Matthew thirteen and verses forty four and forty five, we have those great parables, one verse each. And you know, it's a parable of the kingdom of God is like a a man in search of fine pearls, or a merchant in search of fine pearls, and upon finding one of great value, of great value, in his joy. He goes and sells all that he has so that he can possess that pearl. That's a living trust. It's when we see Jesus and we see the value of Jesus and we see that he is the way. He is the best way. You see, as unbelievers, we think the world's the best way to go. We think that, we think that, that you know, we think that houses and, and cars and, and trucks and, and boats and vacations and leisure, and you could just go down the list. And my, my, my thing was guitars. I was in love with guitars and we amps. And, you know, we think all of that stuff's the best way to go, the best course to go. But when a person becomes in possession of living trust in Christ Jesus, you see that that is all foolishness and that the best course of action and the best way to go is to go, uh, is to run and flee to, to, to Jesus. We begin a living trust. We begin to see the danger that we're in. One of the problems that we have today is very few people, uh, very few people believe that they're really in any danger. They think everything's going to turn out okay, but the scriptures couldn't be clearer. Back in Spurgeon's day, when he, when he was developing that, he had, an, he had a, a, the opposite problem. People had believed that they would have to give an account for their lives at the end of their lives. They fully believed that, and they believed it so much that many people despaired, and they had so much great despair that they, they, they had trouble coming to Christ, and that's what Spurgeon was wrestling with. But we're wrestling with the opposite. Spurgeon wouldn't have used that illustration that way if he were preaching today. I, I can't imagine he would have. What we need today is we need to understand that we're, we're really in distress. You know, as people, as people talk to me about the distress they're in, and and they say, you know, I'm I'm really anxious over this over this virus, and we've got loved ones. I have I have loved ones. You guys well know, and some of you are, are very. I mean, this is not good. If you would get this, if you'd get this virus, yes, there is there is distress here. There's danger here. Um, listen, if we're not in possession of personal knowledge, assent, and living trust in Christ Jesus, then we've got good reason to be nervous. I mean, we've got all the reason in the world to be nervous because we're like the sailor that's in the, that's, that's in the ocean. And we might not even, we might be so storm tossed that we can't even see the rock, let alone the stairs that are at the top or the, or the, 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 the chamber that's been etched out of the top. But, but maybe, maybe there's some of us and I, I meet some who actually have where the Lord has begun to work on them and they begin to see, they see the rock and they see the chamber, but they're trying to climb the stairs themselves. Over the years of doing ministry, I've, I've met people that are in exactly that state where they begin to see 
And uh, they, they begin to see that we say, why well, they see their need for Jesus. They see that they need him. They see that, okay, he is the, he is the chamber. And, and some of them have even said to me, listen, one of these days I'm going to get there and you're going to see it and it's going to be wonderful. And unfortunately, what, what, what happens is they're trying to, they're, they're grasping at that rock and they're clutching on that rock. And, but it's too slippery. It's humanly impossible to climb that rock. How do we get up the rock? That's our last question. How do we get up there? We get up there by faith. And what is this faith? In one respect, it's the hand of the Lord reaching down to take our hand. And what do we do? We take his hand. We take his hand in, uh, in, in, in the personal knowledge that we have of him. We take his hand uh, assenting to that knowledge. We take his hand trusting him, and he pulls us up in to that rock of safety. And, and someone who is sitting here, I mean, if someone is sitting here this morning with doubts, and someone's saying, okay, I hear what you're saying. Please don't turn me off. Don't, don't, don't turn me off. You know, you're hearing what I'm saying, but you've got all these doubts. Listen, this is my counsel. This is what I counsel you to do with all these doubts. Do what David has done. What has David done? He has prayed. What did he pray? He prayed, lead me to the rock. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That's the counsel. What do we do with our doubts? What do we do with our unbelief? Here's what we do. We pray. Notice in verse 5 of Psalm 61, what David says. He says, for you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. What is that about? The fear of the Lord is what that's about. Where does the fear of the Lord come from? It comes from faith. It comes from faith. Where does faith come from? It's a gift. It's the hand of God reaching down to take our hand. And in faith, we take the hand of God that's being reached out. The last thing that that I want to um, show you in Psalm 61, and that we might leave on a really high note, is notice verses 6 and 7, where David says, prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. Again, this, this is, you know, David's life obviously is in danger. He is the king. What's important to understand is he is the anointed king. He is the anointed king, and he's praying for the protection of the king. Prolong the life of the king. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. Why is David praying this way? Is he praying this way because he doesn't want to lose his life? The answer to that, of course, is yes. But is that the only reason he's praying this way? Absolutely not. David understands that the welfare of the people is tied to the welfare of the king. The welfare of the people is tied to the welfare of the king. Now, David was just a type. David was not the fulfillment. David was a type of king who pointed to the king. David was a king with a lowercase k who pointed to a king with an uppercase k. And that king is Christ. And let's take this principle, and let's take this principle and apply it to Christ. There is a real true principle that the welfare of the people is tied to the welfare of the king. Now, when we apply that principle to Christ, we see that we, this rock is, is certain 
This rock is a sure foundation. This rock cannot be toppled. It cannot be moved. Why? Because the life of the people is tied to the life of the king. The welfare of the people is tied to the welfare of the king. Where is the king and who is the king? He is Christ Jesus, very God of very God, reigning in unlimited and supreme authority. So when we cast our cares upon him, who are we casting our cares upon? The rock who is Christ, who is reigning with unlimited authority and power. He can bring us through anything. He can see us safely through the other side. He can see us safely through the storm. Amen. Let us pray and give him great praise. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that our faith is inextricably tied to the welfare of Christ Jesus, who is our King. Oh, Father, give to us, oh, Father, personal knowledge of this, of this King. Give to us a scent of the claims of our king give us a living trust that we would trust and hang on every word that comes from the mouth of our king and oh father may this faith may this faith unite us to the king and bring us safely into that chamber that's in that rock that oh father we may be sheltered from the storms but more than that as we think of ephesians that we would be the recipients to receive every spiritual blessing that's in the heavenly places. For in that hole on top of that rock is every spiritual blessing. There is a treasure, a great treasure on top of that rock. We can't climb the stairs. They're gone. Only you can bring us there. But lead us, O Lord. Lead us. Lead me and lead everyone who is listening, O Lord. Lead us to the rock that is higher than I, that we may be the recipient of the pearl of great price that we may see and gaze upon his beauty, that we may treasure him, and that we may dwell in security and safety with him forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.